listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. I remember the first time I went to uh, Green Gulch Farm Zen Center out of Marin County for an extended, an extended retreat. And I can recall being there, hearing the, the alarm go off at 4.15 in the morning for early morning zazen. And for a night owl, this is akin to a nightmare, essentially, when the alarm goes off at uh, 4.15. But I was in a place in my life where I felt like I had nowhere else to go. But I was kind of at, I was at a crossroads. I was at a, at a place of real authentic depth. And things weren't going according to plan. I don't know if anybody else in this room has ever had that experience <laughs> when things are not going according to plan. Uh, damn it, my ego had a plan. and. You know, the universe pretty much just, with a loving cosmic giggle, pulled the rug right out from under me. Uh, anyway, so I'm, uh, I'm at this particular retreat. I go through the first period of Zazen, which is a, it was 40 minutes. And uh, amazingly, I didn't fall asleep. I heard the, the sound of the waves crashing on Muir Beach. And it was just this hypnotic, synchronous experience with my own breath and my own heartbeat. It was really quite beautiful. Then we get up and we start doing kinhin, which is a walking meditation. So we're walking around the zendo in these beautifully choreographed circles. It was, it was really quite opening, uh, quite an opening experience. And then, as our second period of meditation, 40-minute meditation kicked off, I started feeling pain at the core of my stomach. And in my life, th th my stomach has been a place of kind of weakness for me. It's, it's where, you know, uh, 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 when I would manifest tension, especially as a younger person, it would be in my stomach and so forth. And it, all these memories kind of started coming back. It was really quite amazing. It's kind of a long-winded way of getting to my point, which is basically that when practice really starts to take off, when our practice really starts to kind of develop, if you will, its own kind of divine inertia and starts to take over all sorts of fascinating and um, unsettling things can begin to happen. And it's a form of fire that we begin to kind of walk through. And amazingly, as we pay very, very close attention to our experience as we start to watch our discomfort. Or, if you're one of the lucky few, you watch your bliss, all right, without getting caught by either your bliss or your discomfort. You just kind of remain steady, like a mountain in your meditation. As that starts to happen, we, we become primed uh, we, we, it's, it's like we, we, we get ready. Uh, there's a certain readiness 
that begins to kind of uh, pulse through us. We become ready for, for more. And so what I would really love to encourage everybody uh, to do as we begin to uh, sit, sit still tonight, roughly 30 minutes or so, do your best to meet whatever you're feeling. Do your best to meet your discomfort. Maybe your discomfort is like mine was at the pit of your stomach. Maybe something just feels out of place in life. Maybe there's a profound anxiety, something that's not so specific, but just you're not real sure about what the future holds, and maybe that's coming up. Be right there with it. Welcome it. As odd as that may sound, welcome it. If the anxiety is much more specific, if it's about a particular object of mind, that would, we would call that fear. If that comes up, allow it. Welcome it. Be right there with it. If pain comes up, bodily pain, be right there with it. Welcome it. Welcome the entire experience as it is, without flinching. There's a great uh, saying from one of the ancients, Yun Men. He says, uh, um, well, I'm paraphrasing here, so you know what that means. It'll be screwed up. But just <laughs> so I don't have a problem with it. I hope Yun Men doesn't. But uh, uh, when sleeping, just sleep. When eating, just eat. When sitting, just sit. Above all else, don't wobble. And put in context of what it is that we're kind of going for here, do not flinch. Can you live a life without flinching? If you can, you're living a life very close to truth. What kind of truth, you ask? The truth that goes beyond name and form. The truth that is who you are. Awakening to an enlightened perspective happens when we intentionally open our hearts and minds and let go of all thoughts and feelings that relate to a separate sense of what we've always known as a self. This self isn't anything fixed. It is our mistaken belief that this sense of I is the cause of all pain. The source of our suffering isn't that we have an I or an ego, but rather our ego's clinging keeps us blind to our natural state of boundless grace atop the mountain of spirit. That's the truth. That's the truth of who you are. That's the truth of who I am. It's the truth of all things beyond religion, beyond belief, beyond mind, and beyond time. Language kind of gets in the way here, but essentially what we're trying to do is we're trying to open exactly to what is, and in that opening, in that surrender, what shows up is what is immovable, what indeed has never moved, what indeed is still absolutely, still absolutely golden. And it's who we've always been and who we always will be. It is prior to all experience, prior to desire, prior to time, prior to our pain, prior to our pleasure, 
prior to our breath, it is closer than our own skin. And there's so much space there. <sighs> and then living consciously from that place, we then live as what we would call in the tradition bodhisattvas. We are living for the benefit of all beings. Not just as an expression of generosity for them, but as an expression of deep generosity for us too. Because we are they. Us is them. The Sangha is huge. The group is very big. Everything, every person, is a facet of our true self. And this realization happens as we begin to open to what is. As we stop flinching. As we just meet this life as it is. Fearlessly. Guys ready? So some of you know the first time I ever read the Lotus Sutra, which is one of these big, heavy-duty texts. Uh, <laughs> uh, I felt sick. And I couldn't figure out why. Um, but I would, I would read this text, and I remember just my whole body was kind of, it was as if something was changing. And... Um, I never really figured out what it was. It, maybe it was something I ate. I don't know. Uh, uh, maybe it was some bizarre cosmic shift. Who cares? Fact of the matter was that in my experience, and I found out later as I was practicing with a you know group of of uh, like like-minded souls, that everybody goes through a trial. Everybody goes through a, a dark night of the soul. Everybody hits a plateau as they are meditating. Everybody hits places where I cannot go any further. And most people back out at that point. I would really encourage you, look at those blocks. They're gifts. The minute you're in a space, where it's like, mm, enough. I'm, I, I, you know, I've done enough. Great. Take a break. Take a, maybe, maybe it's a couple years. But come back. Come back to your true home somehow. Doesn't have to be with the same organization, the same people, the same teachers. I would argue it's actually really healthy to shop around. Very seriously shop around. There are lots of incredible places, especially in this part of the country. Uh, there are lots of uh, great teachers. There are lots of great books. There are lots of great organizations. Being able to dabble in that is a, just it's an incredible luxury. I, uh, after I had my experience reading the Lotus Sutra, I figured that was probably a sign that I was on the right track. Uh, because stuff stuff was shifting. And I remember asking my teacher about it in uh, Dokusan. D 
Dokusan, for those of you that don't know, I, I've described this before, loosely translated, mean, means one mind. And it's where the, the uh, teacher and the student meet and they bring their full awareness into that meeting. And basically the student starts with a question and the teacher responds. And maybe it goes into a conversation. It might be one word. It might be no words. Teacher might just bow. Uh, my teacher one time hit me with a stick. <laughs> it, that was a cool, cool moment. Um, and then he started talking to me. But uh, <laughs> it didn't hurt too badly. It left a mark right about here. <laughs> a little blood, yeah. All kidding aside, the, the, the Dokusan tradition, I think, is really, really one of the cool, uh, it's one of the neat aspects of uh, the Zen tradition. And you are all welcome to, uh, to, uh, to do this. Uh, every time there's meditation, I always will try to take two people as best I can, so you can sign up on the website if it's something you'd like to do. Um, regardless, I'm sitting there with, the, uh, with my teacher, and I was asking him, I go, I mean, do we face kind of these hot spots, these places where it's like we're right, we're right in the middle of hell? And he says, let's hope. Hmm. Uh, his point was, as he went on to explain, was that when we're in a situation where there is no foreseeable way out, that's when all the really cool stuff starts to happen. That it's as if we are clarifying butter. Have you ever done that? Where you, you, you put it on the, you put it in, the, in the, uh, uh, the pan and you have to watch it very, very carefully as the solids kind of rise to the top so you can skim them off. This is exactly what meditation does. This is exactly what reading, in my case, the Lotus Sutra was doing. It was quite simply separating the stuff I needed from the stuff I didn't need. And then you scoop that off the top and guess what? What you are left with is something that can withstand much more heat this kind of makes sense? The metaphor makes sense? Okay. So what we're doing in meditation literally is clarifying butter. We are purifying. It is a purification process. Not that you're dirty. Okay. It's not that you're not perfect as you are. But because you are perfect in your imperfections, those imperfections can still burn when the heat's turned up. And so the goal is not to burn them when the heat turns up, but to be able to skillfully skim them off as you go. Every one of us is tested. Every one of us is tested in life. Some of you were probably tested to the point of being here. Maybe you're here because you have felt tested. Uh, as, the, as the teacher, I would say, excellent. Let's hope you get tested frequently. That's how life develops a certain richness. And it's certainly what fuels a practice that is worth something. So along these lines of getting tested, of kind of stripping, stripping down the stuff that we don't need, I want to tell, uh, uh, read a, 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 brief, a brief legend to you. Uh, it's, it's Swedish, and it's about this, this princess and a horrible situation that she's facing. And the wisdom and indeed compassion that was bestowed upon her by a heroine, in this case an old woman, changed her life, okay, for the better. So it's the story of Aris. Maybe some of you have heard it before. I know I've read it to the Sangha uh, uh, before, but um, it, it's incredibly enjoyable, I think. But that's just my opinion. That's my story, so, uh, and I'm sticking to it. 
There once was a kingdom beyond what is now the city of Trollheim. It was a modest kingdom and did little to distinguish itself from any other modest kingdom in the land. The city was ruled by a feckless king and his flippant queen. They were careless rulers, bent only on their own pleasures. They incurred the wrath of the kingdom's people with their frippery. I love that word. It's now going to be, I'll use it in some Dharma talk later on, I'm sure, but <laughs> frippery. When frippering, just fripper. Above all else, don't wobble. <laughs> Anyway, so this king calls, uh, calls a favor um, from a dragon that he knew. And this dragon set upon the kingdom, decimating the trade routes and terrorizing the commoners. The dragon sent all the knights the king sent in vain back to him, toasted with demands etched on the remains of their armor. He would only leave the kingdom if they gave him Princess Aris, their only daughter to be his bride. So this dragon is laying waste to the kingdom. And he's saying, I'm only going to get out of here if I get her. The king and queen made a show of grief, but really didn't mind agreeing to the dragon's demands as they were bad parents and had never really taken much notice of Princess Aris since her birth. <laughs> she had been raised by her faithful nurse, and it was this same nurse who advised her how to seek the advice of the wise woman. Aris was, unlike her parents, a steady-headed, clever young woman and didn't sob and wail as you might expect a high-born lady to do upon finding she was going to be married to a big lizard. <laughs> I'm guessing it's the translation from the Swedish. <laughs> She took her nurse's advice and went to the wise woman who lived on the edge of the kingdom. The old woman, who had three husbands, raised seven children, 18 grandchildren, and 29 great-grandchildren, and was wise in the ways of both dragons and men. The wise woman advised Princess Aris that she must marry the dragon, but there are proper ways to handle them. She, she then gave instructions for the wedding night. In particular, she bade the princess to wear ten beautiful gowns, one on top of the other. And so the next day, after a feast at the palace, she was packed off with the dragon. And that night, their wedding night, the dragon advanced upon her in their, in their sumptuous bridal chamber. She stopped him with a raised hand and eyes cast down, demurely spoke, husband, Though I wish to give myself freely to you, I must beg you undress as I do. As I remove each layer of clothing, so must you. And then you may take my heart. The dragon agreed, and his blushing bride began to slip out of the heavy, dazzling white brocade cover dress. He, in turn, using his great talons, ripped away a layer of his black scales. It was uncomfortable, but he had periodically slipped out of that layer before. The princess, however, slipped out of the second layer, uh, a bejeweled gown. The dragon also clawed off a layer of scales, slightly softer and paler than the first. This hurt more, and he grumbled upon seeing the princess begin to slip off yet another silken gown. 
With each gown that she shed, he too must claw off a deeper layer of scales. By the time the princess was unlacing the sixth gown of gossamer, the dragon was sobbing piteously with the pain of tearing the soft, vulnerable skin. But gamely, he ripped away yet another layer of scales. These soft, like gray hide, excuse me, the soft, like gray hide, not hard and black, like iron as his first. With each layer, the scale the dragon tore apart, his form softened and became lighter and the skin became more and more tender. As Aris let her tenth and final cobweb silk slip drift to the floor with a whisper, the dragon tore through his last layer of now pinkish skin, and out from the ruins of dragon scale stepped a human man. Released at last from the ancient spell of the dragon's form, a tall and handsome man with eyes that sparkled like a child's, a prince, the princess smiled as she stepped toward him, arms open to embrace her new husband, and they sank into the bridal bed to follow the last advice of the old woman, who had had three husbands, seven children, 18 grandchildren, and 29 grandchildren, and was oh so wise in the ways of both dragons and men. This is our work. Each of us here is tearing off scales. Every single time we sit, every single time we don't flinch from the truth of who and what we are, a layer of scales comes off and it doesn't always feel good. Sometimes we're used to getting through layers one through four. Some of us are very open. Some of us are very in touch but really getting to the core of who we are, refusing to flinch in the face of life, allows for something truly beautiful to be born through us that is nothing other than us. It's who we really truly are. And yet it's totally transformed, miraculously and mysteriously. It's the offering. to hear the other side. What, what are the reasons why we need an ego and what's good about having one? Well, first let's talk about the story of Libra. Balance. That's just a story, though. <coughs> right. So there's part of me that wants to know. And what part is that? <laughs> That's my job. Okay? Yeah. So it's not that, I mean, what you're saying is, is fine. You know, the, whether it's the story, the ego's story of Libra and how they connect to their, their Libra-ness or their ethnicity or their tradition or their name. I was or their, to make a joke. I know, no, it's, oh. it, it got me, but <laughs> damn it, this is serious business. <laughs> uh, what you want to know is, okay, so why is, you know, what are the good aspects of ego? Yeah. Well, how can, it, how can it help us? It gets us through the day. Without an ego, you would be psychotic. <laughs> Think about it. Egolessness is not enlightenment. Egolessness is something that needs to be medicated heavily. Okay? 
<laughs> all right? When ego's relationships to its attachments are, are, are broken because of the light of our awareness, which is way beyond ego, guess what? It's just, it, it, it becomes so trivial to the experience of being truly human. Okay? It's still a divine manifestation. The ego. Okay. It's still a divine manifestation of the infinite, like everything else. Everything is an expression of infinity. And it's always there. And it's always there. However, the choice that we make as we begin to clarify the butter, so to speak, is whether or not we want to be trapped by the ego's stories or we want to be free of them. Do you want to be hooked? and torn by those hooks, okay? Or do you want to be absolutely transparent to any and all catches, traps, or snares? That's really the question. And then you get to make a choice. And the choice that goes towards the generosity of awakening to the truth of who you are is the choice that's not, that doesn't wobble. It's the choice that's without scales. It's utterly and totally exposed naked, standing in that light, and then it recognizes, oh goodness gracious, I am that light. That light is me. That light is all beings. So I've heard you talk about, maybe I've misunderstood, but I think I've heard you say that there's a point where the ego sees that it's not getting what it wants, and it sort of backs off. Is that not right? That's kind of not right. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't think the ego ever really backs off until it's it's forced off the plank. And I've never heard the off the plank story. I've heard you mention it. Oh, okay. Well, it's basically what happens is when we when we start a meditation practice, what happens is ego is is uh, pretty much driving the ship. It's the captain. It's Ahab. Arr, you know, you know, walking around, you know, boom, boom, looking for the white whale, right? And then. You didn't know Herman Melville actually was a bodhisattva, did you? It's actually <laughs> so, so what happens is, the, as we begin kind of steering this ship and navigating these waters and so forth, you know, arr, we'll get to awakening yet. And then what happens is, the real way to get to awakening, actually, the more we meditate, the more secretly we have been building a plank that we ourselves are going to have to walk. The ego recognizes, oh my God, I'm irrelevant, and I'm halfway across the plank. I either go further, all the way, because awakening is what I want, or I go back onto the ship and live the lie. Live the lie. The delusion. Okay? And when we go off the plank, the big secret that I'm going to tell you is that we fall, but we never crash because we are the ocean and the ship and the crew and the sky and the sun. There's, a, there's a, an, ex, uh, an experience of infinity that shows up that really pretty much lets us know there's nothing to be afraid of. Just think on it. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Michael, you talk about the ego, and so are you saying to be a human being, we simply do have an ego, and therefore our work here 
is to be alert to what the ego is manifesting and, and to pay attention. Yes, I am saying that, I, but it's not the final stop, but yes. Correct. Yeah. That isn't the final stop, but then we also, so our work is to continually pay attention to that? Continually pay attention to it. Continually pay attention to it. And in the attention, we start recognizing, you know, this awareness that we give to the ego and what it's doing, this small self. We, we can begin to watch this small self do its little dance. And then we start to recognize at some point, oh my goodness, there's something aware of the small self. And if it is aware of the small self, if the small self has become an object to some bigger subject, what the heck is that bigger subject that's doing the watching? And then we have a whole new, new chapter. And that new chapter is a chapter that begins with the word freedom and ends with the word freedom. Very short chapter. Yeah. yeah. All right. For seventeen ninety nine, you can get it over at the. <laughs> Couldn't help it. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great way of asking it, actually, yes. Being true to yourself is also, however, a really important first step in clarifying butter. Okay? So in other words, what we do is we, we essentially become very, very clear about the, the boundaries and the limitations and the excesses and the, you know, and the failings of this, this small self, Right? And if we're being true to this small self, what we're basically doing is authoring a story in blood. Okay? When we can watch the self that is being true to itself, then we're, we're approaching freedom beyond that story. But then again, that's just a story. So the conundrum kind of continues. The words so get, get, get in the way here, but... Essentially, the whole, whole point is to be able to, we tenderize ourselves, we, we begin to you know, take off, being true to ourselves is basically a big scale, you know, that we peel off and so forth. Our gender issues, justice, war is wrong, you know, well, of course, all these things are really important, but at the same time, when they become the whole, there's no peace in going to war against war, Right? So we, de we develop a whole different, different there's a, a tectonic shift in the way we begin to approach all of those stories. And truth becomes so much more important than the self. Yeah. Take a uh, last question. Yeah. When you say we peel it off, mm -hmm. who's peeling? <laughs> you win. <laughs> nice question. Who is doing the peeling, Judy? It's being peeled. Mm. Yeah. It is being peeled. It is being let go of, ultimately. The image is that the talons are carving into... Actually, what's happening is the body, okay, the being, the small self, is shaking off everything it doesn't need. 
the other metaphor is when you're climbing the mountain of spirit, there comes a point where there's no more room for you. The air is so thin up near the summit that you can no longer carry all that baggage. You've got to let it go. Right? Same exact thing. Who's, who's letting go? Report back. <laughs> Thank you so much.